Our psalm this morning can be found in Psalm 116, a psalm praising God for his deliverance. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Glorious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will, pray, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst of, uh, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 20. We are reading verses 1 through 23. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths there lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, 
For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around this strange and mysterious account of new things, of a dead man rising, we ask that we not be disbelieving, but believe. And trust in your great and good work of resurrection, this first act of new creation. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. One of the great freedoms that the Bill of Rights secures for Americans is the freedom of speech. This means that everyone has the right to be heard. They have the right to voice their opinion. This freedom is exercised in various ways, but one particular way that the First Amendment to the Constitution preserves for us in the exercise of free speech is the right to peacefully protest. We can assemble for peaceful protest. And in our culture, we are fond of protest. There are protests for fair wages. There are protests for the sanctity of life. There are protests about regulation on Wall Street. There are protests about police shootings. There's even currently an active protest about Donald Trump's tax returns. Yes, we have the freedom to protest peacefully in order to redress political concerns with our government. The right to protest for us is important. As a resident in Washington, D.C. for six years, I witnessed many of these protests, and I suffered from the traffic jams that such protests create. But never have you seen protests done in such an orderly way. You have to have a permit and go through an entire filing process. It's really well handled. At some point, you wonder whether it's really a protest. But there was one thing that united all these different protests that I witnessed across those six years. 
that the protesters had in common. And that was that the protesters all did believe in their cause. They were committed. We tend to protest those things that are of first importance to us, and people came protesting, driving hundreds if not thousands of miles to protest what was of first importance to them. And this morning, it may be helpful for us to consider that we gather to protest, that we are here to protest, that we gather with Christians around the world, some who gather in stone cathedrals in England, some who gather in prisons in Turkey and Iran, some who are under thatched roofs in Tanzania, some who are in fear huddled together in Egypt. Others are in storefronts in Rio, and still others are in house churches in China, and they gather with us, and they gather to protest. Because what we protest is the old order of things, what Jesus calls the ruler of this world. It's the broken order of things. It's the rule of sin and death that mars our world and marks our own lives, makes the world what it is. We gather this morning to protest that because this is of what is of first importance to the church. We see the scars of this rule of sin and death in our world. We know it. Nations are at war. There's political chaos and turmoil. There's still starvation. There's ethnic divisions. There's racial strife. There's disease. We know of the need of this protest on that global, arching, grand narrative. But yet we also know of the need of this protest on a far more personal level as well. There's the news of cancer. There's struggling marriages. There's sick children. There's friends who have died. And then there's the corruption of our own thoughts, of our own words, and of our own deeds. And so we gather to protest by exclaiming that Christ who died has risen to new life. That is what this high and holy day is all about. That our celebration of Jesus' resurrection is a protest against all the brokenness and sinfulness of our world and the way that it marks it and mars it. And Paul tells us that he delivered what was of first importance that he gave that to the church in Corinth, the resurrection from the dead, and that everything depends upon this event, that it can't be a myth, it can't be a fairy tale, that if it didn't happen, then we are to mo the most to be pitied of all people, is what he says. It's all futile, it's a waste, if Jesus is not up from the dead. But obviously it's not a small claim, is it? that a Galilean Jew was crucified by Romans who were professionals at killing people. And that then three days later, he exited the grave. He walked out of death into immortal and eternal life. That's the claim. It's a difficult assertion. We've never seen it before. Dead people stay dead. And no one would argue more 
that this is a difficult assertion than those first disciples of Jesus. It's difficult. And so it begs the question, why do we exactly believe it? Why do we believe this Galilean Jew born in Nazareth was raised from the dead and is now the ruler of the kings of the earth? Why do we believe that? And why do we bother to gather for protest this morning? There's one reason for this. It is because our Lord possesses the unique ability to challenge our fundamental assumptions. That he possesses the very unique ability to challenge what is most fundamental to us. You see, in the modern world, we are prone to possess a chronological snobbery. That is, we look back on through the alleys of time and we look at their beliefs and we're prone to say, yes, well, they were primitive people, they're unsophisticated, and they believed in things like fairy tales. And so for them to believe in something like the resurrection is really not a big deal, but we know that such things don't happen. The resurrection is just one such example of primitive religion. But when we honestly read the gospel accounts, like John chapter 20, you note that the disciples were not looking for Jesus to be raised. Despite everything he had said to them, they are surprised and bewildered and confused when they arrive at that grave. And John even tells us that they were not believing. Mary herself was struggling. She's asking questions. Where have they put him? What have you done with him? Why have you done that? That's despite seeing two angels and Jesus himself. They were bewildered and confused. Why is that? And the thing is that Mary was a good first century Jew. She believed in the resurrection of the dead, but what she believed from what we know of first century Judaism is that the resurrection of the dead was to happen at the end of time to everyone where everyone would be raised for judgment. And so she could affirm that there was a resurrection, but that one single person had been raised in the middle of time? This was supposed to be a grand event at the end of time. This made absolutely no sense at all. And so it was preposterous. None of these disciples were prepared to reach this conclusion. They believed like you do. Dead people stay dead. Dead people don't rise. If they do, it's at the great end of things, not here in the middle of things. And so, friends, it's important to affirm that this was just as strange for them as it is for us. That a man walking out the other side of death, one man claiming to trample down death, was just as strange for them as it is for us. Something mysterious, something unusual has taken place. That is what John goes to great lengths to present to you this morning. This is what God would argue with you. That a new act of creation has taken place. But how do we then go from this unbelief where we're like Mary, and we're looking around and confused, and we don't know whether we can get over our doubts and our uncertainties, whether we can really fully invest ourselves. How do we get to the place where we accept something like the resurrection? And there's two things for us to explore here. And the first, we discover the answer 
in Mary's experience, Jesus calls her by name. Follow with me in verse 16. Leading up to this, Jesus said, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. It's a powerful moment. You can feel the personal nature of it. That here, Mary is so concerned. And you note that Jesus calls her by name to arrest her, to stop her. She has already looked at him and not recognized him. But when Jesus says her name, he has no concern for her background. In Luke 8, we learned that she was a chaotic woman. She was filled with demons. She was disreputable. She was not respected in the Jewish court of law. Then she didn't even notice him. She overlooks him and thinks that he's the gardener, just a commoner who may be, in fact, a thief. Jesus overlooks all of that. And he calls her by name. He's taken up with this woman's cause and he speaks her name. He says, Mary. It startles her. It seizes her. And then it summons her to belief. And she knows that it is the risen Jesus who has addressed her. And so why do we believe in the resurrection? Why would we be willing to accept something like this? It's because Jesus doesn't just call Mary by name. Because he's not the dead Lord. He's the living Lord and he still speaks. And he calls his sheep by name is what he says in John chapter 10 and verse 3. That his own know him and his sheep respond. That we know his voice and he leads us out to pasture. That he is the one who protects us and defends us. That he is the one who laid down his life for us and took it up again. And friends, this is why we believe because Jesus has startled us. He has seized us and he summoned us that he speaks our names and calls us to himself. And when we are brought into that relationship, you notice what Jesus says to Mary. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And this is an absolutely phenomenal moment in John's gospel, where up to this point, Jesus has only referred to God as his Father. He has said, my Father. But now suddenly after he's been raised and he calls and summons Mary, he is willing to say to your Father. He is willing to apply the term that the disciples and Mary have been brought into the family, that they've been reconciled to God, and it's all because of their standing in Jesus. They have now been adopted because they belong to the Son. And the Son and the Father now gives them the full rights of the Son, not because of anything they've done, but because of the accomplishment of Jesus. That in going to the cross and dying on the cross and being raised, that he's been vindicated against sin and death, declared to be the victorious one. And now we have opportunity to share in that victory when we believe in him, when he summons us by name, when he calls us. 
This is why we believe in the resurrection. Second thing here about why we believe in the resurrection is that we find the answer in hope. Jesus brings a new creation. John explains to us what is happening in chapter 1. He gives a programmatic summary that Jesus was the Word who was before all things, and all things were created by Him and for Him and through Him. And He says that the light has not overcome the darkness, but all through the Gospel of John, there is an incredible building of darkness that culminates when Judas betrays Jesus and He leaves the presence of the disciples, and John comments, it was dark. It was a dark night. It was the night the crucible of our whole world was there, that all the tragedy of sin and the darkness of the world was compiled there in Judas's betrayal, and all the sin and sadness piles up in that moment. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and he suffers, and he dies, and he cries out, it is finished. The intriguing part for us is that we move in the Gospel of John from the Jesus who creates the world to now what John begins to tell us is a new creation. In chapter 20, verse 1, you see that John brings a certain phrase into emphasis, now on the first day of the week. Once again in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. You see, John writes his whole gospel as if it were happening in the span of eight days, and that the old creation, the old order of sin and death, when Jesus cries out from the cross that it is finished, he's announcing that the old order has died, that it's been broken, and that when he rises again on this first day that he has brought new creation to life, that Jesus' resurrection is God's first act of new creation, that God has not left his world alone, that he's not forsaken it. This is what it all means. And then shortly after this, in verse 22, you find this odd encounter where Jesus is with the disciples, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And people often ask, what is that? But if you're carefully reading your Bible, you'll know that it's an allusion to Genesis 2-7, where God breathed on the dust and formed Adam out of the ground. And it's a provocative claim that Jesus is reconstituting humanity, making us what we were always intending to be by giving us the Spirit. It is an act of new creation where God is raising us, even now in the old broken order of things, as a foretaste of what is to come. And friends, this is why we believe in the resurrection, is for the sheer beauty of the hope that's held in front of us. That God is saying that he's not condemning the world and leaving it to itself. That he's not simply washing his hands of it and being done with it. It announces that God has not forgotten our cause, but rather God has stepped into the creation. He's become a man in order to take up our cause in order to make the world right and realize its purpose of what is always intended to be. And if not, you have to deal with those consequences. 
If not, we consign the world to hopelessness. We cut it off from any fresh possibility. We consign the world to despair. We consign the world to the possibilities it already knows. If we say that resurrection cannot happen and that there is no fresh creative power of God that can be had inside of the creation, then we've just dropped into a cynicism and a despair to say that there is no fresh possibility for this world. That this world is left to its own steam. It's left to its own devices. It's left to its own power. That our hope lies with us. It lies in our abilities. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but for me, reading the cycles of world history, that's not a world in which there is a great deal of hope. It doesn't have much to offer us. But what is happening with Jesus This resurrection, it speaks a better word. It offers a word that says God has invaded and intruded into the old broken order and he's brought life and light to bear and that he will continue to bring it to bear and that one day this Jesus will return and make all things new and make all things right and sin and its stain will be removed and all of its disorder will be destroyed. That that is a hope worth believing in. A better word has been spoken. And so we gather to protest. We protest the old broken order of sin and death because we believe that God has trampled it down and destroyed it. That when our Lord Jesus walked out of that tomb, it was a fresh act of creation. And he walks out of the tomb and he summons you. He calls your name. And you hear his voice. Follow him this morning. Rejoice in him and all that God has stored up for us in him. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate the light and life of the resurrection that breaks into our tired and weary world that this resurrection breaks the hold of our sin, that you do not hold on to our past record but forget it like you did Mary's, that you call us by name and make us your own and allow us to call on you as Father. And Lord, that you give us the hope of the world to come, this great act of new creation that has busted into the middle of things and broken everything apart. Fill our hearts with joy and believing this morning. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake.